Proverbs chapter 11, or Proverbs, Proverbs 8. Why am I saying 11 tonight? Proverbs 8. We're going to be looking at verse 11 again, but Proverbs 8, and we'll be dealing with primarily verses 8 through 12. And I think your handout might have 8 through 14 on the inside. That is a, that is a typo that I found after I'd already printed them. And there's one other typo somewhere on the handout, and I'll let you find that at some point. But as we look at Proverbs 11, I want to begin reading again at verse number 8, and we'll read down through verse number 12, and then we'll get back into where we were last week. Verse 8 says, All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing froward or perverse in them. They are all plain to him that understandeth, and right to them that find knowledge. Receive my instruction, and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. I want to tack on verse 12 to kind of deal with this entire subject tonight. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. Now, last week in verse 11, we began considering that expression. That expression for wisdom is better than rubies. So tonight we'll kind of continue that thought, but we want to remind ourselves where we were, and we ended with this last week. We learned specifically that wisdom is Christ. And when you see wisdom throughout the Scripture, you see wisdom uh, even in our text here. Remember, uh, wisdom is Christ. So as we see uh, illustrations of wisdom, as we see declarations of here is wisdom, we are seeing perfect truth. Now, if I was to tell you tonight that only part of the Bible was truthful, then of course we would have no purpose and no reason to continue. Uh, we might as well uh, close, the, close the doors, turn off the lights and go home. If we're not dealing with perfect truth, we're dealing with perfect truth because we're dealing with a perfect Christ. We're dealing with a Christ who is perfect. And because He is perfect, we know that His wisdom is perfect. It can be nothing but truth. Christ can speak nothing more and nothing less that is the truth. Christ, we learned, is truth. So when we acknowledge what is truth... We remember even the scripture that teaches us when Jesus was before Pilate and Pilate asked the question, what is truth? Truth was standing right before him. Jesus is truth. He was standing there before uh, Pilate himself. Think about this for a moment. Nothing else can come out of the mouth of our Lord except for truth. Everything associated with, with Christ is truth. Every, every uh, part of his word is truth. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, they all speak nothing but truth. Every doctrine, every teaching, every chapter, everything about Christ agrees with the Scripture. Now, when we think about how are we led into that knowledge, how do we know that we can trust this as truth? Because the Holy Spirit of God leads us into truth. Uh, folks, the reason we understand tonight the truths of the Word of God is because the Holy Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of truth, leads us to understand that truth. That's why we understand. And we understand because the Holy Spirit is truth Himself. So the whole of the Bible, we could call it the Word of truth 
But we could also say just in the same breath, the wisdom of Christ. Christ's wisdom is the word of truth. The word of truth is the wisdom of Christ. Now, someone might argue tonight and say, no, wait a minute. Uh, There are particular truths that don't have anything to do with Christ. There are teachings in the Bible that do not have anything to do. They don't mention his name. But remember, when you're considering the scriptures, you are considering the entirety of it. You're considering the entirety of what the Bible is trying to reveal to the reader. Now, again, uh, this this will sound a little bit uh, off tonight, but I want you to stay with me for a moment. Uh, it is possible, now listen carefully, it is possible for you to worship the Bible and miss Christ. Now what I mean by that is, is we can become so immersed with the Scripture. And again, the Scripture is the word of truth. But we can become almost an idolater to it to where we begin to say, listen, I, I just love the Bible for the great things about it. It's, it's understandable that it's doctrine. It's understandable that there's things we should know. But if you miss the God of the Bible, you're going to miss the purpose of the Scriptures. As I've mentioned to you, if every Scripture was taken away and burned in a burn pile somewhere, the Scriptures would still remain. The Word of God would still be true. Christ would still be everything that he's declared to be in the Bible. There are people tonight that say, listen, if if we lose our copy of the Scriptures, we're going to lose the wisdom. Nothing could be further from the truth. You're not going to lose the wisdom of Christ because Christ dwells within you because of the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Now again, the day may come where they will attempt to round up every Bible. And it's going to get really difficult in our world today because we have Bibles electronically now. We have Bibles in just about every corner we can think of. And you say, why so much time on this? Because we need to understand when he talks about the wisdom of God or the wisdom is better than rubies and all the things that are desired, nothing could be compared to it. We're talking about something that is certainly precious. It is, it is Christ's wisdom. So tonight we want to look at really three main headings, and some of these have merged from your handout last week, so if you try to put them together, you'll see they kind of overlap. But really three main points tonight in these verses 8 through 12. Number one, we want to deal with the righteousness of the wisdom of Christ. Number two, the riches of the wisdom of Christ, and then the recognition of the wisdom of Christ. All three of these things go into this thought. So as we think about this in verses 8 and 9, the, the exposition of this very simply is that the Scriptures speak words that are right. All right? The Scriptures speak words that are right. Look what he says. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing froward or perverse in them. All the words which... God speaks. All the words which Christ speaks, all the words which the Word of God speaks, they are right words. They are so right that there is nothing in them that is perverse or forward. So all the words are in righteousness. That word righteousness, we understand, uh, illustrates our standing in God. But we also need to understand that the word righteousness means to be agreeable to. In other words, it is agreeable to the nature of who God is. Right words don't just mean that they make sense and they go together. They're agreeable, which means 
The words in which Christ speaks and the, the words in which the Bible says, they agree to the very nature of God and who God is. They're consistent. They're consistent with the righteous requirement of God. They meet the law of God. Now remember, in order to be right with God, we have to have a perfect righteousness. We have to have Christ's righteousness to obtain eternal life. The right words, the right righteousness. Man, insufficient. Our words, folks, let's be honest tonight, our words are not always right. As a matter of fact, we speak as human beings, we speak forward and perverse things. We don't always speak truth. We don't always speak what's right. Now, some days we may say, I don't out and out lie, but maybe you don't quite tell the whole story. Okay, that would still be the same as not speaking right. So the scriptures speak words that are right. There is nothing perverse in them. Now, we are insufficient in of ourselves to be entitled to the wisdom of Christ. But we are only eligible for that as we have his worth and his excellency. In other words, these words of wisdom require his righteousness, right words. Now, things that are forward and perverse, sometimes we think profanity. That's not the definition here. The definition is that which is contrary to that which is right. So in other words, here that verse is again, all the words of my mouth are righteousness. There is nothing forward or perverse in them. In other words, I speak nothing that is contrary to its rightness. Going one step further, I don't speak anything that doesn't agree with the entirety or the totality of the scriptures. Okay, you see how, the, you see how he's talking about here. There is, there is a perfection here. There are no contradictions. Nothing contradicts another. If it said it here, it can be backed up somewhere else. There's harmony. So the, the scriptures speak words that are right. Number two, the scriptures, according to verse number nine, the scriptures are plain and easy to be understood through the Holy Spirit. And you say, wait a minute, the Bible's not easy to understand. Well, what he is saying here is they are all plain to him that understandeth. Notice what it says. They are plain to him that understandeth and right to them that find knowledge. That tells you there's a very specific group he's talking about here. The words of the scripture are not plain and easy to be understood, just everybody. It is those who have understanding. Why do we have understanding tonight? We have understanding because of the enlightening of the Holy Spirit of God. He gives us discernment. He gives us the ability to judge things spiritually. Do you know most society who is... Obviously, they're unbelievers, do not how, know how to judge things spiritually. You and I ought to judge everything through a spiritual lens. Every choice we make, everything in life, we ought to judge it through a spiritual lens. But the world who's unsaved doesn't know how to do that. They don't know how to judge things that are spiritual because they don't have understanding. 
And what he's saying here is that the wisdom of Christ and the righteousness that comes with that, uh, that's why we have the ability to understand spiritual things. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, the, natural or the natural man doesn't have knowledge. Some of the most intelligent people, and their IQ would tell us this, their IQ and their doctorates and their degrees would say they are full of knowledge, but they lack spiritual discernment. So as you look at this and you think about spiritual things, is the Bible a worldly thing or is it a spiritual thing? And I'm using the term thing very loosely. It's spiritual. It's not going to be understood with the knowledge of the world. It's going to be understood with the spiritual knowledge and discernment that is given by the Holy Spirit of God. So when we're talking about wisdom in Scripture, we're not talking about something that is given to just everybody who wants it. It's given to those who are in Christ. It's given to those who have His righteousness. There's mysteries in the Bible. There are doctrines of the gospel. There are doctrines in Scripture that sometimes they're a little bit harder for you and I to understand, but it is Christ through the Spirit that gives us understanding of them. The parables were a prime example of how Jesus taught. The parables were not given for the unbeliever. The parables were given to the believer. They were intended to edify and encourage the believer because the believer is the one that was going to be able to understand the spiritual thing. And you saw even sometimes the disciples struggled with that. But yet, it still, it is said they are, they are plain to him that understandeth. Now, there are certain things in Scripture that are harder to be understood. Uh, someone would say, I, you know, you're reading through Revelation or Scripture, and there's a lot of that I don't understand. I'm not saying there's not hard parts. And there are hard things. Some of the truths that Paul speaks about in his epistles are very difficult to understand if you sit and, and you study them. But understanding here, Paul made a very clear declarative statement. He says it a couple of times. He said, it is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save the chief of sinners. That is the plainest truth you're ever going to speak. If you don't know anything at all, you ought to know that. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, <laughs> which I am chief. Wisdom shows us and teaches us we are sinners and we praise the Lord that we have a Savior. That's wisdom. We may not be knowledgeable according to the world standards, but to understand the truth of what it is to be a sinner, it is the result of having the wisdom of Christ and a right to them that find knowledge. How do we find knowledge? Well, the world says you find knowledge by deep study of man's greatest authorities. When you go and you read a textbook in a college class or you read a textbook in a, in a high school class, you're reading somebody's writing who is considered an authority in their particular field. And that's how we find knowledge. And as we grow and we get older, we find more and more and we understand more. But to find knowledge scripturally is a spiritual and an experimental knowledge. In other words, it has been put to the test. It's proven to be true. In other words, it's not just, hey, this is a bunch of truths, but I've never experienced the truth. I've never really fully gotten the truth. It's an experiential knowledge. Why? Because it's been put to the test. That's what an experiment is. 
I know God to be faithful, not because the Bible says he's faithful, but because he's been faithful to me by experience, right? Understanding the scriptures is not just about knowing the words on the page. It's by experimental knowledge. I have put God to the test, and he has always been faithful. So when we read scripture, like God is faithful, we say, I know that's true. He's been faithful to me. God's been faithful to this little church. He really has. He's been very faithful to this little church, and we haven't always been faithful to him, but he's been faithful. And he continues to do that. And that's because we have a knowledge of him. But it also has the tone here when it says, him that understandeth and a right to them that find knowledge. The tone there, it's a person who has a desire to know. You know, you ought to seek for the wisdom of Christ. And you ought to seek for it diligently But here's the key. You've got to do it in a right way. If I want to know more about God, if I want to know more of the wisdom of Christ, where do I find that? Well, number one, I'm going to find that through the the aiding of the Holy Spirit of God. Where's he going to guide me to? He's going to guide me to the scriptures, which is going to testify of Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. And I desire that. We, We read in our call to worship, a thirsting soul. In other words, I am so thirsty for the, tr- the truths and the things of God that I'm seeking it. I come into the house of God desiring it. You know, sometimes people come into church services and they say, okay, give me something. Just give me something. How we ought to come in and how I ought to come in as the preacher is saying, Lord, I am thirsty for your wisdom. I'm thirsty because I need this and I want to know more about you. These verses are powerful verses because they're not just kind of flippant things that we just say, oh, you know, I'll take whatever I can get. They're all right words. And then in verses 10 and 11, he kind of changes the way that Solomon's writing here about wisdom. He talks about the riches of the wisdom of Christ. And he very plainly says, receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. Plainly, he says, the value of wisdom or the value of the wisdom of Christ is more worth than silver or gold. Now, don't read into this to the point where you say, I don't need silver and I don't need gold. We, we need that in our day and age. We need uh, finance. We need money. We need things. But he says, listen, the thing you ought to desire more than that is wisdom. That ought to be your goal. Receive my instruction. The doctrines of the Bible, even specifically the doctrines of the gospel, are worth much, much more and should be desired much, much more than even if you were given the choice between the doctrines of the gospel or millions of dollars in gold and silver, you should desire the gospel above everything else. Now, people often say, well, that's an easy choice. I would always choose the doctrine of the gospel. Let me ask you the question. Has the offer ever actually really happened to you? Have you actually ever been offered a million dollars in gold and said, all it's going to cost you, here's a million dollars in gold, but all you have to do is just renounce your faith in God. You know, it's easy to say, I want 
the doctrines of the gospel. I want the wisdom of Christ more than anything until the actual offer comes. And again, I would hope all of us would say, you could give me a $2 million worth of gold and I still desire the gospel more. It should have the preference. And then he uses the word knowledge again. Receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than gold. Here's that word that pops up again. Knowledge here is the knowledge of Christ or the knowledge of God. It's the knowledge of the gospel. It's the knowledge of the great truths. Going back to what we just said a moment ago, building upon that, what kind of knowledge is this? It's a spiritual and experimental knowledge of the things of God are of more value. Over in Psalm 19, if you want to turn there with me, Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10, kind of illustrates this point here. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10. The Bible about the law of God or his word, he says the law of the Lord is perfect. I love this phrase, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Even the psalmist, as he writes there, he's writing about how much more he desires the riches of God more than the riches of the world. So when we talk about this wisdom and we talk about the riches of the wisdom of Christ, I, I, I told you folks in the fellowship hall uh, Sunday that one of, the, one of my favorites is Charles Spurgeon. And he said this quote about how Christ and his word must go together. He says, Christ and his word must go together. What is true of Christ, what is true of the Christ is both of him and of his word. Behold, this day the everlasting gospel has Christ within it. It is only because Jesus is not dead that the word becomes living and effectual and sharper than any two-edged sword. For if ye leave Christ out of it, you have left out its vitality and power. As I have told you that we will not have Christ without the word, so neither will we have the word without Christ. If you leave Christ out of the scripture, you have left out the essential truth which, is, which it is written to declare. If you leave out of it Christ as a substitute, Christ in his death, Christ in his garments died in blood, you have left out of it all that is living and powerful. How often have we reminded you that as concerning the gospel, even as concerning every man, the blood is the life thereof? A bloodless gospel is a lifeless gospel. Unless we receive Christ's words, we cannot receive Christ. Now you'll notice in Proverbs, he says, receive my instruction. It is the reception and the receiving of Christ. Back in our text in verse 11, back to our verse that we started with last week or ended with, the value of wisdom 
is worth far more than any precious stone. Now, rubies here are given as an illustration. It's not meant to say that his wisdom is only better than rubies and not diamonds. Okay, the idea here is that there is no precious stone that surpasses the wisdom of Christ. His riches, we remember sayings like he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We, 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 we see these illustrations of, of the riches of Christ. But to possess the wisdom of Christ is far better than having any sort of precious stone. But he goes on and he says, also the value of wisdom is greater than possessing anything else. If all you had was the wisdom of Christ, you would have something far more precious and far more better than rubies and diamonds and gold and silver. He says, and all the things that may be desired, look, not even possessed, all the things that may be desired are not to even be compared to it. So you think about the greatest thing you desire and nothing will be found greater than the wisdom that's found in Christ. We read this weeks ago at this point, but in Proverbs 3, this principle was given to us in Proverbs 3, 13, 3 verses 13 through 15. You can just listen. He said, happy is the man that findeth wisdom and a man that getteth understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver and the gain thereof than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things that can't, thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. That reads almost exactly like the verse we just read. This isn't the first time that we've heard it. There's nothing equal to it. There's nothing that can compare to it. If you look, if you want to look at this one in the book of Job, this one's a little bit, this one's stirring to me because we think about what happened and we think about what happened with Job. And this entire chapter of Job 28, you could break this whole chapter up into three headings. The first heading, verses 1 through 11, would be the search for wisdom. Okay, so this, it's, it's what, is, what goes into searching for it. Verses 12 through 22, it gives us the price. How much does wisdom cost? And then the final section, verses 23 through 28 of Job 28, it shows us the source. Now, I'd encourage you to read that on your own. We're not going to read the whole thing tonight, but I want to start in verse 12 where it starts in the price of wisdom and goes into the source. He says, but where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? Man knoweth not the price thereof. Make note of that. Neither is it found in the land of the living. Make note of that. Man's insufficient for two things. Number one, he doesn't know the cost. Number two, it's not found in the land of the living. So no matter where you look in this world, you're not going to find it apart from what he goes and say. The depth saith, it is not in me. And the sea saith, it is not in me. What is not in me? Wisdom. It cannot be gotten for gold, neither shall silver be weighed for the price thereof. In other words, you couldn't bring in enough silver that would give you wisdom. It cannot be valued with the gold of Ophir, with the precious onyx or the sapphire. The gold and the crystal cannot equal it, and the exchange of it shall not be for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of pearls, for the price of wisdom, here's that phrase again, 
is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia shall not equal it, neither shall it be valued with pure gold. Whence then cometh wisdom? And where is the place of understanding? For repetition's sake, seeing it is hid from the eyes of all living and kept close from the fowls of the air. Destruction and death say, we have heard the fame thereof with our ears. God, verse 23, understandeth the way thereof. And he knoweth the place thereof. The place of what? Where wisdom is. For he looketh at the ends of the earth and seeth under the whole heaven to make the weight for the winds, and he weigheth the waters by measure when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. Then did he see it and declare it. He prepared it, yea, and searched it out. And said, and unto man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Christ declares himself to be the light. He is the light of the earth. He is the opposite of dark. He is the opposite of evil. Where wisdom is found, it's found in God and it's found in Christ. That's where you're going to find it. But there's nothing that you and I can compare it to. Those illustrations of the gold of Ophir, that that is where the greatest concentration of gold at that time in the world was. And it's, the, 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 the historians say the value of that would far surpass what the value of the gold that's contained in Fort Knox still today. It would far, far surpass it. He says even all that is not anything to be compared to what you have in the wisdom of Christ. So here's what leads us in this final section in verse 12. And I extended this into this because I want us to see. Uh, my Bible actually has a, a, uh, a text break between verse 11 and verse 12. So uh, it, it reads almost like there's supposed to be a subject change. Again, those page breaks and those chapter breaks, um, that doesn't, th- those, those were not inspired. Those, are, those were translators. And if you have study Bibles, the study Bibles take topics and they put them in, in categories. So this, this it's not a, a totally different thought. But here's what it says. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. So this final section is the recognition of the wisdom of Christ. The recognition, I, it says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. This is, as far as tone intensive speech, wisdom now begins to speak in his own person. It says I. It would be like me saying, I'm going to say now. It's almost as if wisdom is saying, I wisdom, wisdom is an inanimate object, it's not a person, but we know that wisdom is Christ. I, wisdom. I, Christ, dwell with prudence. From here to the end of this chapter, it is spoken in first person. 
You're going to see the word I love in verse 17. You're going to see the word I was in verse 23. Verse 30, then I was. All the way through the end of the chapter, it remains in this first person narrative. Wisdom doesn't speak on its own. There's a person behind the wisdom. That's recognizing the excellency and who Christ is. He's, in a sense, he's drawing his own picture. These verses, he begins to describe the hand of God. He draws a picture of who he is. This phrase, to dwell with prudence. This word prudence is an interesting word. The definition of prudence, and there's, if, you, if you go onto Webster's or you go onto the internet and you type in definition of prudence, you're going to get a number of different definitions for it. The best I could do by going back to commentaries and other scriptures and looking at this is the biblical definition of prudence is the ability to govern and discipline oneself by the use of reason. That's what prudence is. So I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I, Christ, dwell with prudence. Christ is fully possessed of prudence. That means he has the full ability to govern and discipline himself by the use of reason. Now, this goes back to what wisdom is. A wise man governs himself. A wise woman knows how to discipline themselves. You know what I'm learning? I don't consider myself really old, but what I am learning is the older I get, the the more evidence of wisdom is the ability to govern yourself and to discipline yourself without somebody always telling you how to govern yourself and what to do. Now, to me, this is just a pet peeve, but there's nothing worse than having to tell somebody who should be able to govern themselves how to still do it. Like, you shouldn't have to tell a person who's been an adult for 30 or 40 years how to still govern themselves and how to discipline themselves. Wisdom does that. It's wisdom that teaches us how to govern. About Christ, it's telling us that he dwells in prudence. Prudence dwells in him. Colossians tells us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. The spirit of wisdom rests upon him. Here's the thing. Jesus didn't have to learn prudence. Do you know a child when they're born, they have no idea what prudence is? Do you know a... Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, even maybe into the twenties, they're still learning how to govern themselves. A child turns 18, that doesn't mean they have the ability to govern and discipline themselves. Now the government says when you're 18 or 21, you're something, but that doesn't mean you're prudent. You, it is, it's, it's, it's learning, it's the wisdom, it is, it is learning that. Christ did not have to learn that. He didn't have to go to school to learn what prudence is. We might say he, Christ, and prudence are brought up together. They're, they're part of the same house. It's present with him always. It's always in him. It's always exercised by him. When Jesus Christ was on this earth in the incarnation, The Bible even uses terminology that he dealt prudently with people. If if you look at Isaiah 52 in verse 13, this gives us this this picture. And, And again, this is a prophecy about Christ. 
Isaiah 52, verse number 13. Isaiah is prophesying about Christ that will come. And notice the characteristic it says about him. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told, them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. It was prophesied that Jesus would deal prudently. There's also an account of an illustration of prudent in Luke chapter 2 regarding a young Jesus. He's been referred to as the 12-year-old Jesus. It's one of the only times we're given Jesus's age, we'll say. Luke 2, verse 42. And of course, this was Mary and Joseph. They're going to Jerusalem every year at the Passover. Verse 42 in that chapter tells us, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast, and when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wish ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. You see, that's Jesus himself dealing prudently with people. What were they trying to do? What were those teachers trying to do? Those teachers, even at 12 years old, they were trying to ensnare him. And yet... He knew how to, dealt, to deal with them. That's wisdom. And then the final section of Proverbs says this, I dwell, I wisdom dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. Now the word witty is translated wicked devices. In other words, Wisdom, Christ, who dwells with prudence, finds out knowledge of witty or wicked devices. The same word, although it doesn't say witty, is found in Proverbs 12, 2, and it says, A good man obtaineth favor of the Lord, but a man of wicked devices will he condemn. Here's the point. Here's, here's the wisdom of Christ. Here is, here is God himself knowing the very hearts of all men. There's not a heart he doesn't know. There's not a thought he doesn't know. There's not a plan. There's not a scheme. There's not a device that he doesn't know. He even knows the secret thoughts of the most wicked of people. 
Now, what is it about this witty invention? What is a witty invention? Well, first of all, we need to understand sin is man's invention. Man invented sin. How did he sin? He fell against the commands of God. How does a man recover himself? Not by his own invention, not by his own means, not by his own ways. He is found and rescued by God. So what do we know about the gospel? Well, we know the gospel was not a response to simply man falling because the gospel was already planned before man ever sinned. Before Adam and Eve ever sinned, the gospel was already planned. It was not a reaction. Who would be saved? Who would be the Savior? All of those things were appointed. Jesus Christ is the way of saving men. He is the way of saving those who are guilty of their witty inventions, their schemes, their plans, their sin. He rescues them, how? By His sacrifice. He paid the ransom. He paid what was due. We already know the Bible tells us that Christ, in Christ abounds all wisdom, all knowledge. These witty inventions, these things that man creates, don't ever find yourself saying, well, man invented sin, so God invented the gospel. That's not an accurate way to say it. Now, you say, what's the harm? Because the gospel was not an invention. An invention sees a need and responds to the need and creates something to fix the need. The gospel was not invented just to respond to the need of man. The gospel existed before man ever sinned. The gospel was already in its fullness as far as who the Savior would be. That's why it's given in a contrast. The wisdom, I wisdom dwell with prudence and find out knowledge of witty inventions. How to govern oneself. How to discipline oneself. The gospel should never be called a scheme or an invention of men, but rather it is the plan of God. Man did not create the gospel. Paul did not create it. Paul did not say, here's how the gospel works. Think of the greatest theologian you can possibly think of. He didn't create it. You can, you can, you can take men who have studied uh, all the doctrines of salvation, all the doctrines of grace. They did not create it. Sometimes the doctrines of grace are equated with the creation or the invention of a man named John Calvin. John Calvin did not invent or create the doctrines of grace. Before John Calvin ever lived, the gospel was. Okay? 
Now, what man does is man wants to put a label on everything and say, oh, that's what, that's an invention of man. We don't preach Calvin's gospel. We don't even preach Spurgeon's gospel. And I've already, I've already confessed to you, there's, there's not a single preacher and his materials that have had a greater influence on me than Charles Spurgeon. But it's not his gospel that we're preaching. It's the gospel of Christ. And that does matter. Not because I'm telling you, there are people that say because we stand on the doctrines of grace, they say Springfield Bible Baptist Church is a follower of John Calvin. We're not a follower of John Calvin. Now, John Calvin said some things right about Scripture, but John Calvin also said some things about Scripture that were not right. John Calvin had some thoughts about the church that we would not agree with. He's not the authority. It's an invention of man. Now, again, the point is, is that the gospel itself, the Bible, is not an invention of man. It's not a scheme. It's not a sales pitch. There are people peddling the gospel today like it's a sales pitch. You're not trying to get someone to buy a product. Okay? You're not selling the gospel to say, hey, look, uh, uh, accept it today and you can pay later. This is not an invention of man. Wisdom is not an invention of man. The wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of man, and it always will be. Christ has the full knowledge and perfect knowledge of everything. It's in him. It's part of him. Jesus Christ preached the gospel and the wisdom of God. Everybody that comes before him, has become before him, comes after him, or even, even long after we're gone, communicates the same message. They don't create something new. So when we look at this and we say, all right, Go back to the very beginning of this chapter when we started talking about wisdom crying at the gates. What was it doing? It was calling people. Doth not wisdom cry and understanding put forth her voice? Remember, we went through that whole line and she stands at the top of the high places. She cries at the gate. Unto you men I call and my voice is simple. Understand wisdom and you fools be of an understanding heart. Hear for I will speak excellent things. And he leads us to say, here it is. This wisdom that is more valuable than rubies. I simply ended there in your handout with a very simple couple of questions. Can you hear the voice of the wisdom of Christ, which is the call of the gospel? The value of wisdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is far above rubies. Nothing can be compared to it. Now, what's sad is that by putting Christ in the Old Testament, there are some that will say that's not preaching truthfully. And I would tell you to not put Christ in the Old Testament and not put Christ there would be to lie to you. There are people who refuse to say that the Old Testament, Christ is not in the Old Testament. Christ is only in the New. That's not the position this church takes. Christ is through the entirety of the Scripture. 
And it's not just in a figurative, allegorical way. If you pull Christ out of the Scriptures, you have a lifeless Bible. He has to be in all of it. When when God has declared in His Word that in Him is all the treasures found, everything we read in the Old Testament is pointing us to a perfect Savior. This wisdom is far greater, far greater and better than rubies. And all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. All right? I hope that'll help us tonight. Let's